You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, your source for growth in the area of national security law during the nationwide protests, the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine, and all the time. As always, the lawyers on MSLT are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. This week on NSLT, we will be returning to the topic of pardons in a conversation with Helen Bulwark, the former Deputy Chief of Section for the Department of Justice Pardon Attorney's Office and a longtime DOJ attorney. If you missed part one of our conversation with Helen, go back and listen to last week's episode to hear about the basics of pardons and clemency. Now let's start this week's episode. I think to the public, that the pardons granted by every president, you know, I think less so this last time because of the shift in culture on the drug uh, mandatory minimums that occurred. I think Obama enjoyed more sort of public support for what he did. Um, But in general, there have been highly controversial pardons. There have also been an enormous number of ones that really kind of touched on national security. Mm-hmm. And so I'd ask you to ask sort of both things. When you talk about standards and acceptance, I mean, fugitivity is hard to reconcile um, with an acceptance of responsibility because it's like you're avoiding responsibility. I'm thinking of Mark Rich, presently uh, Edward Snowden. So uh, I wonder if you could talk about those and maybe some of the other um, more controversial national security folks who have been either pardoned or discussed as possible subjects of pardon? Well, again, this this really goes to this is the president's power. The Justice Department historically felt that fugitivity disentitled you to ask for anything. Um, and so, you know, it, it was always the department's policy that if someone wanted something from the government, either, you know, their case to be dismissed or whatever, uh, clemency, you had to come back to the to the United States, subject yourself to uh, the court, and then you know we would talk about it. Mark Rich was a complete aberration from that, and you know that's that was the president's decision. That was his call. It's the the whole Mark Rich Pincus Green, who was his partner, pardon grant was exhaustively ex- explored in in congressional hearings uh, after the end of the Clinton administration. And it's it's no secret because it was testified to by the pardon attorney and also by uh, the, dep- the deputy attorney general um, that that application did not go through the Justice Department. Um, Mark Rich was represented by uh, Jack Quinn, who had been President Clinton's counsel to the president. Um, and, you know, it, it was it was directly uh, addressed to the president. And again, this is not secret because the pardon attorney testified to it. The first time the pardon attorney's office knew about Mark Rich's pardon was when in the middle of the night on January 19th to 20th, his name showed up on a list that we got from the White House. And then we had to figure out who is this guy? Uh, we had no time to do anything <laughs> uh, other than put his name on the list. I mean, this was highly irregular. Um, but again, the fact that he was a fugitive to the department in, in its historic policy, we would have said that disqualifies you from seeking clemency to the president. Doesn't matter. 
If he believes that that was the right thing to do, and apparently the pitch that was made to the president was the prosecution is extreme, you know, they're, they're, uh, they've charged him with unfair uh, offenses. And, you know, this, this is kind of a, I won't use the term witch hunt because I, that word, that term has just gotten overused, but this was uh, prosecutorial excess. And apparently President Clinton uh, accepted that. Now, and you know, when the uh, when the congressional hearings happened, it, it turned out that Mark Rich's ex-wife was was a great friend of, of the Clintons and had donated four hundred fifty thousand dollars to the Clinton Library, and had made a lot of other donations to the Democratic Party. So that was one of the reasons why that pardon was was investigated so thoroughly uh, by Congress, because you know the question was did did the uh, donations really uh, cause the president to act as he had? Um, I will also mention that the, Southern, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York undertook a pretty lengthy investigation into the, the circumstances of the granting of the pardon to determine whether there are any charges that could be brought. It was determined eventually you know, that they wouldn't bring any charges. Um, nothing ever happened. But um, again, you know, he was a fugitive. The department's policy would have been, we think that he's not entitled to clemency, but the president trumps the department and the president acted in that case. I would, I'd love a, to ask a follow-up question to that, right? Because mm-hmm. um, you're, you're, um, you're talking about a congressional investigation that followed this pardon. Um, what was the purpose of that investigation? Because if the, if the pardon power is plenary, um, and there are a lot of questions around this now, um, what could a Congress do? Well, Congress has has the inherent authority to investigate waste, fraud, and abuse, and I think that that was the the hook they used. Uh, the the Congress really has very little ability to cabin a president's pardon power. Um, you know, it, it can't pass statutes to limit how he exercises it. It can try to investigate it if it wants to, if it can find a legitimate legislative reason to do so. Uh, you know, the courts say that there's, there needs to be a legitimate reason for the Congress to do that. Um, you know, depending on the circumstances, rather broadly or narrowly construed. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing about the Clinton pardons was there were so many controversial ones that were granted on the last day. I mean, Mark Rich wasn't even the only one. Uh, there was a whole list of, of cases that, that Congress looked at um, that were on the president's list that last that last day. Um, and, and basically the question was, were these in some way corrupt pardons? Uh, you know, there were questions of whether um, Hillary Rodham Clinton's brothers had sold access essentially, had, had you know, represented people, had come in and asked, asked the president to uh, grant pardons to people that were paying them for their access to the president. Um, you know, there were there were any number of cases that the the, uh, the Congress looked at, and I think the umbrella term was fraud and abuse of the power was was what they were looking at, uh, in part to to look at is there anything that can or should be done about it. But the bottom line is there really isn't much that they can do about it. When the president when if the president does something that Congress finds uh, questionable. Um, you know, they, they have the power of the purse so they could zero out the pardon attorney's office, which would be bad for the process, but it wouldn't stop the president from doing what he wants to do because he doesn't need the pardon attorney's office if he doesn't want it. So, well, so you know, it, there, there, there are limited opportunities for Congress to act. 
Right. So um, let's let's take this to the you know the logical conclusion, right? Let's say that they had found rampant corruption um, because of uh, the Clintons that they had you know turned up evidence of pay for play, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there. So I suppose criminal charges could be brought against people that you know like offered the bribes. I, I suppose that they were looking for bribes or um, gratuities or something. Sure. So the people who were who were bribing uh, could be um, potentially prosecuted, um, but that doesn't disturb the, the the pardon itself. Just to be clear. No, that's exactly right. The pardon the pardon stands. I mean, I think part of of what they were looking at is is there any way that we can overturn these pardons? Um, and the answer was decided to be no. There's nothing we can do. I mean, there was a lot of upset and a lot of grumbling. Um, you know, and the Justice Department uh, had to get up there and lots of them, lots of uh, officials testified about what had happened and what hadn't happened. But, you know, in the end, the president's power or the pardon itself is is something that that can't be clawed back. It can't be undone by the next president. It stands if there's criminality involved. You know, if, if the president had still been in office, impeachment could have been a remedy. But of course, the president was not then in office. Um, you know, it, Elisa, you mentioned that, you know, it's it's pardon season because it's the end of the administration. That was not the typical way that the clemency power was was exercised throughout history, except in the last several decades. Um, Clinton was the first one that I know of that, you know, just went out with a raft of, of grants. And now everybody says, oh, it's pardon season because it's the end of the administration. But if the system is working well, Grants are happening throughout the time that the president is, is in office. Part of the problem that modern day presidents have though is that they don't look at it as a regular housekeeping uh, function of the presidency. It kind of gets short shrift and they don't think about it until they're close to the end of the term and they go, oh, I haven't done very many cases. You know, and that, that sometimes then leads to, well, why don't I have more better cases? Um, but you know, the, the, you can't turn the ship on a dime. I mean, it's better when it functions throughout the administration and there's regular grants and regular denials. Um, and everybody, you know, just recognizes that it's, it's a regular function that should continue on. Um, I know you wanted to talk about some other national security cases. Um, well, there are a number of cases involving, um, Puerto Rican nationalists, people that are from the, from the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, who you know strongly, <laughs> to the point of of being violent about it, um, wanted to uh, get people's support for um, granting them independence. And some of those cases go all the way back to the Truman administration when Harry Truman was president. A person named Oscar Colazzo tried to assassinate him. He came to Blair House and and tried to to kill President Truman, and he was convicted. Um, and sentenced to death. And then Truman commuted his sentence to life imprisonment. And then later on, you know, he was he was commuted further. Um, Jimmy Carter commuted three other Puerto Rican nationalists who had engaged in an armed attack on the House of Representatives when it was in session uh, in uh, 1954. And he commuted their sentences after they'd served 25 years in 1979. Um, George Bush's uh, George H.W. Bush's pardon of the Iran-Contra participants, of course, in December of 1992, was very controversial. 
because Caspar Weinberger, who had been the former defense secretary under the Reagan administration, was about to go to trial in connection with the Iran-Contra affair. And the special counsel had said that he was going to or uh, was contemplating calling Bush as a witness in that case. When Bush pardoned the uh, the six Iran-Contra defendants, there was a great controversy over whether or not, you know, that had any uh, any overtones of, you know, protecting himself in doing that. Um, that that uh, grant, we now know from what he has said, was uh, supported by then Attorney General Bill Barr, and President Bush actually issued a very long uh, statement about why he granted uh, that pardon. So um, another Puerto Rican nationalist case in 1999, President Clinton offered clemency to 16 Puerto Rican nationalists who had been engaged in, uh, when convicted of seditious conspiracy and a variety of offenses. Um, their group had been involved in a number of terrorist bombings throughout the United States. None of them were actually convicted in the bombings, but the movement was, was, quite, um, was quite violent. And President Clinton offered commutation to 16 of them. 14 of the, um, of the defendant or the inmates accepted the, the grant. They had to, uh, as part of that, they were, had to agree to renounce violence and to not associate with, with other Puerto Rican nationalists uh, until the, the expiration, natural expiration of their sentence. Again, Congress held long hearings about that as well. Uh, there was a concern or voiced by members of Congress uh, that that had that grant had been motivated in part uh, by the desire to help Hillary Rodham Clinton's Senate campaign in in New York. Um, but there was a long, uh, long hearing about that as well. One of the two people that uh, rejected Clinton's re uh, commutation offer in 1999 um, was uh, a man named Oscar Lopez Rivera. And in um, 2017, uh, in January of 2017, uh, President Obama commuted his sentence. So this is a man he's, who not only was offered commutation by one president, but was granted commutation by another. It's, it's not so unusual to see someone who gets two commutations if it's a death penalty case, for example, where you know someone had the death penalty and then he was commuted to life without parole and then a later judge or a later president commuted the sentence of life without parole to a, a term of years. But as far as I know, uh, Lopez Rivera is the only one who was offered clemency by a president, rejected it, and then got it uh, from another president. So that that's pretty unusual. Um, yeah, I think I think one thing that would uh, was very interesting recently, and I say recently because some of these really go back, in particular the Puerto Rican nationalist right. movement, which is obviously still active and it was around for at this point decades but was the commutation of the sentence of scooter libby right um i think really um i think that really had a lot of people asking questions at the time um but and i do remember um reading president george w bush's statement about that can you talk a little bit about that just because our uh, many of our uh, listeners were i wouldn't say cutting their second set of teeth when that <laughs> occurred uh, right. But they might like to know what that looked like. I mean, he was he was charged with leaking the identity of Valerie Plame, who was in a covert uh, CIA agent um, and uh, for political purposes, really, at the time um, to deflect uh, from 
a, an editorial that had been written or a, a, an opinion piece, which had been written by her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it was sort of this one-off weird tertiary thing, which interestingly enough, Nicole Wallace admitted in open court had been the brainchild of several people and that she herself, um, though she's an MSNBC hostess now and could not be lovelier, that she had been part of the group trying to come up with a great idea to see what they could do to sort of take this guy on, uh, who was Joe Wilson. But w- what happened there? Well, the Libby, Libby was actually convicted of perjury and obstruction of justice. It wasn't in, in the course of the leak investigation. Um, and I think that there was, you know, he was, he was Vice President Cheney's chief of staff. And, you know, the question was, who was it that, that gave this name out and to whom? Um, Patrick Fitzgerald, who was the U.S. attorney in Chicago, was, um, he handled this prosecution. And Libby ultimately was convicted of perjury and obstruction rather than, you know, violating national security by, by, by leaking the name. Um, because he was, you know, Vice President Cheney's chief of staff and, and was one, the only person, as I believe, convicted in connection with this whole investigation, it was kind of a cause celeb. He, he was sentenced to a 30-month prison term um, by Judge Reggie Walton, and he was also, uh, of course, had supervised release, and I believe a fine, yes, and a fine uh, imposed as well. And from what we know now, um, I guess, you know, Vice President Cheney was livid about this whole thing and was lobbying heavily uh, to get President Bush to uh, commute his sentence. And so he, on July 2nd, 2007, uh, President Bush did, in fact, commute his sentence, which was right before he was supposed to report to prison. So uh, he, d- I believe he left intact the, uh, I'm almost sure this is right, he left intact the fine and the supervised release, but he commuted the, uh, the prison sentence so that he would not have to serve, serve the prison time. Now, again, I can say this because it's, it's a well-known fact because there was another congressional hearing about it. Uh, that grant was done without the input of the pardon attorney's office. So we were not involved in it. Um, but uh, even though Congress was, some members of Congress anyway, were infuriated by it and they, they had a hearing, uh, president obviously didn't have to answer anything about it to Congress because it's his power. And, you know, there was a hearing, I believe, Joe Wilson testified. Uh, the pardon attorney was there basically to say, well, it didn't go through us. I, I don't know. I can't answer that question. Um, and there were a couple of um, you know, uh, law professors there who were opining on the pardon power. Um, but you know, that because of who he was and because of the, the whole contretemps over um, uh, Ambassador Wilson and his wife and his wife's job, it became a, a very controversial case. Um, I believe the president, uh, right up to the day of, of uh, President Obama's inauguration, I believe has, has said that in his book that, you know, Cheney was still agitating for a pardon uh, for, for Scooter Libby, and he didn't feel that it was the appropriate thing to do, and he didn't do it. Uh, but in April, of course, um, of 2018, President Trump did pardon uh, Scooter Libby, and you know his reasons were his reasons, whatever they were. 
Um, so again, this was this was a case where two presidents acted, you know, uh, because of what they felt was the appropriate thing for them to do. Um, and it's not, you know, it's it's an example of the power being plenary. He can he can do whatever he feels is is appropriate. So Helen, I'm going to defer to Yvette now because she has a burning, burning question that I think so does the rest of America. Okay. We, yep, we're talking about controversial uh, pardons and I'm going to ask the $64,000 question that everyone is thinking about and why everybody tuned into this particular podcast. Can the president pardon himself? Uh, We have a um, an unusual uh, president that I don't think it's controversial to say uh, has some criminal exposure, at least uh, uh, to a, a higher degree than what we've seen historically. And there, the president has openly mused about um, the ability to pardon himself. And so can the president pardon himself? The answer is nobody knows. Um, and I guess we'll only find out if the president does it, and then if it's litigated. No president, of course, has ever tried to pardon himself. Uh, and there is no case law on it. Uh, the pardon clause does not, in so many words itself, express, you know, say anything about it. Although there is an argument to be made, I suppose, and, and people are writing a lot of things about this. And one of the, one of the thoughts that people have is, well, the way it's the way the pardon clause reads, the president shall have the power to grant pardons and reprieves, which, you know, sets up the idea of one person giving and another person receiving. So can you grant something to yourself? It's, you know, it, it, it boggles the mind. Um, one would say probably not, but the question has never been addressed. Um, the, the Office of Legal Counsel in the White House very briefly, and I mean very briefly, addressed this question uh, right before President Nixon resigned um, in an opinion, um, presidential or legislative pardon of the president. It was a quick request for what is the Office of Legal Counsel's opinion on, on this. And here's what, what the opinion says. It says... Pursuant to Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment, is vested in the president. This raises the question of whether the president can pardon himself. Under the fundamental rule that no one may be a judge in his own case, it would seem that the question should be answered in the negative. Yes, and that's all it says. So logically, one would think not. Uh, the the uh, OLC opinion then goes on to talk about whether the necessity doctrine might might be applicable, but obviously it's not here. Now they but they did uh, take on one other interesting uh, uh, issue that could come up in this, and that is the office said, well, what the president might do. Another approach to this could be under the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Uh, if the president were to declare himself temporarily unable to perform his duties, the vice president would then become the acting president. As such, he could then pardon the president, and then the president could either resign or resume the duties of his office. So there was that idea, which, 
I don't know that anybody's even thought about that one recently. Well, they have now, Helen. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> but that, of course, would would require that, you know, President Pence be willing to acting President Pence be willing to do that. Um, of course, you know, a president could be pardoned by his successor. Um, I believe it's been said, at least I've read it, that that uh, President-elect Biden has indicated that he doesn't intend to pardon President Trump. Um, and and he's also said, though, that, you know, he wants to move on. So the real question is, can the president do it? Nobody knows. It would have if if he did give himself a pardon, grant himself a pardon, write up a piece of paper saying he pardons himself. We, in order to know the answer of whether that was valid, it would have to be litigated somehow. So if, you know, a U.S. attorney were to charge him with a federal offense that occurred during his term uh, and the president then pleaded the pardon as a bar to the prosecution, then a court could decide that question. Um, a pardon of the by the president would not help him if he faces uh, criminal charges in a state jurisdiction because the president's pardon power does not extend to state offenses. It also would not be a bar to civil penalties for any conceivable, you know, uh, tax offenses or, or other offenses if there are any. I don't know. Um, but it's a very fraught question. There are about as many uh, viewpoints on it as there are people that like to talk about it. And the answer is we really don't know. Uh, I guess it was it was considered uh, during the Clinton administration as well. Um, but only in, in the Nixon and Clinton administrations, as far as I know, has the issue even been thought about before now. Um, I'm not sure whether it was ever considered a real live issue then as as it appears to be today. And the answer is we won't know unless he does it and unless he then has to put it uh, to the test of litigation. I would say it doesn't. I mean, listening to you talk about the history of pardons, though, I would note that there have been a lot of pardons that were issued um, in order to bring the country together, even That's including, right. right, you know, Confederate officials who, right. I mean, it would be hard to argue that they had done anything other than treason by seceding and Right. taking up arms, you know, so on, and obviously violating what would now be, I guess, the Smith Act and so on. But um, Well, the very think, first pardon was done f for purposes of, you know, bringing the country together. I mean, George Washington's pardon of the Whiskey Rebellion insurgents. I mean, that was that was a huge uh, divisive point uh, in, in the early days of, of our country. And, and two people had been convicted of treason and were to hang for murder for that for treason. And he decided that the right thing to do was to pardon these two who had, you know, done the the uh, the to the nth degree to, to challenge the whiskey excise tax and sort of cool down the temperature and bring people together. So, you know, the pardon process does serve a very important purpose. Jimmy Carter's proclamation on his first day in office granting uh, pardons to Military Selective Service Act violators who had not you know, come to the Ford Clemency Board seeking seeking clemency. He just did it by proclamation and pardoned them of their offenses as long as they were nonviolent and as long as they weren't employees of the Selective Service Administration. I mean, there have been a lot of acts the presidents make, you know, take to to heal the country, to bring the country together. Even Nixon's pardon, even the Nixon pardon, you know, the motivation for that was 
for its desire to put this all behind behind us, move forward, and and stop agonizing over Watergate. Um, one other thing I'd like to say about clemency is that you know the the uh, the sensational cases get a lot of got uh, get a lot of attention, but the really best part of clemency is the regular people that apply for clemency who want the president's forgiveness or who seek a, a commutation of sentence for a good and legitimate reason. There's nothing better than seeing those people get granted clemency by the president. And I have to tell you, I think anybody who has ever worked in the pardon attorney's office will tell you that when those cases get granted and we get to call the person and tell them that they've been granted clemency, it is one of the best and most emotional experiences a person can ever have. I mean, I've had people break down in tears on the other end of the phone when I tell them that the president has granted them a pardon. It's just, it's what the what the process was meant to do. It, it's meant to to be healing. It's meant to be, you know, forgiving. It's meant to bring out the best of in people who have, you know, gone astray perhaps and and now have come back and and want to make something of themselves. Want to start over, whether it's by you know getting out of prison and and starting a new life or whether it's by you know, getting a pardon and moving on with their lives. It's it's really an important process and it's it's a great power that the president has. And you know, the controversial cases really shouldn't overshadow that. That's an excellent point. We do often have sort of the anecdote now uh, beginning to inform uh, policies going forward. So um, I do wanna thank you, Helen. This has been really kind of incredible. Um, and we've talked a little bit about uh, what, uh, little, really, there isn't anything that the Congress can do to constrain that because obviously there's a separation of powers. Right. Um, so that, it'll be interesting to watch to see whether or not there is any effort by um, the president. Uh, and I don't want by anything I'm saying to suggest that I think he would need to do that, um, but to see whether or not he would try to grant himself some sort of reprieve from any future federal case. I think that maybe one of the things that's interesting is looking back as far as the whiskey rebellion, I suppose there's some risk um, as there would be in a pardoning of uh, Trump by a, a President Biden, if that were ever needed, and it may not be, but if it were, um, you know, because President Trump has indicated he would run again, uh, whether right. that sort of thing would be in the back of the mind of anyone who would or would not grant a pardon. So right. that's true. I am so glad that, well, and it's been so great talking to you. It's so great to have this historical context. Uh, and we hope that you'll come back uh, someday <laughs> after we've heard about this pardon uh, process, because it is, uh, you're, you make an excellent point about pardon season being perhaps occasioned by the press of other work, that it's stacked up until the last minute. Um, but this year, obviously, there's been a lot of last minute things like COVID-19. Right. Um, so maybe that won't happen, but maybe it will. I guess we'll we'll wait to see. Thank you, oh, Helen. Oh, you're very welcome. And I just say the, the pardon attorney's office is working every day, all day. You know, I mean, they're processing cases, COVID or not, whether there's act final action or not, they're processing cases all the time. Um, and that that's what their their whole reason for living is. So that's why they're there. That's um, awesome. Once again, you know, these career professionals that are really devoted right. to the work are gems. Right. So, Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll continue to watch pardon developments in the coming weeks. And uh, as always, we will hyperlink the constitutional provisions regarding par pardons 
the law discussed, including the Office of Legal Counsel opinions, which are public and are also, for your information, available on the OLC uh, DOJ website. And we'll also uh, hyperlink a couple of the articles on today's topics in the note to the podcast. We'll continue to deliver you content during these difficult times so that you can grow your knowledge of the law, legal opportunities, and all events that affect national security law. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments and feedback. We really want to hear from you. So you can find us at Twitter at ABANATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue to keep you informed and give you context on these fast-moving legal developments so you don't really have to scratch around looking for things beyond your smartphone, which we know you're addicted to. We know what you're doing out there. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast, including myself, are here in their individual capacity and not behalf, on behalf of any agency or firm. So we'll see you next week with more content. Be well, be safe. We're all in this together, even though we're apart, even though we have different views. Let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.